You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 33. Today, we're sitting down with Virginia-based fine art landscape and portrait photographer, Michelle Sons, to chat about her recent transition to becoming a full-time photographer, photography projects, alternative revenue streams, finding fog, the challenges of converting her Honda Element into a camper van, and more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I hope your week is off to a great start so far. Just a quick announcement in case you missed it in our last episode, the podcast now has a new website, which you can find at outdoorphotographypodcast.com. There you can play the episodes, follow the podcast on your favorite player with just one click, find the detailed show notes and profiles on our amazing guests, You can ask a question for Tidbit Tuesday and leave a review without needing to be on Apple Podcasts. Some of you have already left some amazing reviews on the website, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for your kind words and for also helping spread the word about the show. All right, I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, Michelle Sons. Michelle and I actually got to meet in person for the first time in Acadia National Park when we were both there last month. And it was so fun to get to meet one of our guests in real life. And although we weren't able to record the interview in person, I think you will still really enjoy our conversation today. So before I roll the interview, let me give you a brief background on Michelle. Michelle Sons is an exhibiting fine art landscape and portrait photographer originally from England and is currently based in Virginia in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. Michelle's work is based on a soft, subtle, pared-down aesthetic with fog, mist, and soft light featuring often in her images, which range from the Blue Ridge Mountains to Death Valley and from Greenland down to Antarctica and beyond. Her work has been featured in several solo and group exhibitions and in several local and regional publications, as well as in a number of corporate and private collections. Michelle's clients include National Geographic, The Wilderness Society, Luminous Landscape, and she has been an ambassador for LensBaby. Her work is extensively featured in the National Geographic Beautiful Landscapes 2018, 19, and 2020 calendars and has also been featured on OutdoorPhotographer.com and on NaturePhotoGuides.com, which is now SmallScenes.com. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Michelle Sons. Michelle, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us today. Hi, Brenda. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Grateful to you for inviting me. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really excited to share with the listeners your story. So I already gave your bio in the introduction but I always like to get to know sort of the person behind the camera a little bit more. 
And so I was wondering if you could start off by telling us a little bit about your life before photography and then how you sort of transitioned into becoming a photographer. So, you know, how did, how did photography enter the picture for you? Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a little bit of a protracted story, so I'm going to try to keep it brief, but basically, uh, my interest in photography began back when I was uh, in my early 20s. I actually moved to Southern Africa uh, wow. with uh, my partner, my boyfriend um, at the time. He loved photography. And there we were in this sort of incredible place. Um, and it really fostered an interest in photography for me. And that was sort of like the very beginning of my interest specifically in photography. Now, I always loved nature as a child, and I was always uh, very interested in anything creative. Um, So that part, that interest reaches further back. But photography specifically caught my attention in my early 20s. And was it mostly uh, landscape or wildlife? Usually I think of wildlife when I think of Africa. Yeah, I mean, it was all about the wildlife there. Uh, But I I've always been interested in landscapes and that sort of drew my attention as well. But certainly wildlife was, you know, the primary focus of most outdoor activities in Southern Africa. So uh, yeah, yeah, wildlife. Yeah. And interestingly, I'm not, not really uh, focused at all on wildlife photography today. Um, But that was sort of the genesis of the general interest in photography. Yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't in Southern Africa for so long. It was only about a year and a half. And after that, I came back to the U.S. and enrolled in college uh, and signed up for a couple of photography classes. Uh, back then, it was film photography. Right. It was pre- pre-digital. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of a long time ago. But, um, yeah, so I, I loved the classes. I, I just really, really enjoyed the process of developing my own film and printing it. But then I kind of lost it, you know, like life just kind of got in the way. Um, Mm -hmm. I got out, got a job, got busy uh, and just kind of lost track of the fact that I really loved uh, photography. You know, I'd just begun to dabble in it and then I got distracted from it. So um, for a lot of years, uh, it was just kind of this lost, lost thing for me. But eventually... I guess about 10 or 12 years after college, I got married and had my daughter. Uh, mm-hmm. And that sort of like rekindled my interest in photography. I wanted to document her babyhood and her childhood. Yeah. Um, and so I got myself a camera. Uh, and that sort of like just was an opportunity for me to rediscover uh, that love. So that was kind of where I picked it back up again. Then because of uh, the circumstances of my family, um, I had been through a divorce and my daughter was having uh, to go on this visitation out of state to see her father. Mm-hmm. It was a difficult time for me. And on one occasion, she was going to be gone for like three whole weeks and she was only mm-hmm. like four or five. You know, that's yeah. kind of a tough, a tough absence. Uh, so I tried yeah. to distract myself by enrolling uh, in a landscape photography workshop It was basically a private workshop uh, in Sedona, Arizona. Um, Mm -hmm. And I picked it just really based on the timing of my daughter's visitation. I wanted to do something in that middle week of the three that she was gone. And I found this this workshop uh, in Sedona during that week. So I signed up for it. And it just kind of, it hit 
checked all the boxes for me. I, I didn't know it was going to, but it sort of reminded me, oh my God, you, you love uh, landscapes, you love the outdoors, you love nature, you love adventure, you love all these things. Mm-hmm. And landscape photography just kind of like, you know, was this beautiful package of all these things that I loved. And so I became very excited about it at that point. Um, yeah. And it was, it was sort of like a double it was a bonus for me that that workshop was with uh, a person that ultimately ended up becoming a wonderful, wonderful friend and actually a mentor for all of the early years of my development as a photographer. Oh, that's wonderful. So it was sort of like this doubly wonderful thing. You know, I discovered this field of photography that just resonated for me and then also was able to work with this very, very talented person for, for many years to help me kind of learn the craft. So Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So that's kind of the early, the early story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I understand that your background is in geography and environmental science and that you decided to go full-time as a freelance photographer recently. Um, I think the beginning of this past summer, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations on that. That's super exciting. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So how did you know you were ready to go full time? And, you know, have you discovered that you had some transferable skills between your previous career and now being a a freelance photographer? Uh, Yeah. So uh, the reason uh, actually for the transition was driven less by readiness on the photography front (laughs) and more by uh, necessity on the, uh, you know, on the the side of the career that I was working in at the time, which was Mm -hmm. uh, real estate development. Okay. Um, Although my background is in geography and environmental science, ultimately I worked for many, many years in retail geography, uh, which was geography. What is that? Yeah. So uh, basically that's, uh, spatial analysis uh, used to help guide retail locations. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. So I worked for Advanced Auto Parts uh, as a site analyst or a research analyst uh, for 14 years. Um, and I worked closely with development managers. So they were the people out in the field that were like finding sites that could potentially be new stores for Advanced Auto Parts. And my team uh, worked on sales forecasts and market analysis uh, for the company. So we kind of worked side by side with these development managers. Um, and after 14 years of doing that, uh, I was ready for a change. So mm-hmm. I kind of jumped to the other side of the development process and became a development manager for a different company. Mm-hmm. Um Actually, we were a senior housing development company, and I did that for four years. Um, and it was wonderful, uh, incredible opportunity for me, but it was just really stressful. It was incredibly stressful. Um, and the workload was extremely heavy. Um, and I found myself sort of um, basically in dire straits, you know, waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, mm-hmm. having... Um, an anxiety attack about, you know, something I'd forgotten to do that day or, you know, the implications of forgetting were very, very expensive. And it it was just too much pressure. I just don't do well under that amount of pressure. Yeah. And so I decided for my own well-being, um, I was going to stop doing that and 
try the photography thing. So yeah, yeah, well, it's, that's great. It's very similar to how I ended up going into photography as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> was was more of an escape from where I where I was rather than a destination of where I was going. <laughs> um, but yeah, same thing. I was a super high stress career position lots of responsibilities that mistakes were not tolerated well. And so it was more of a mental health decision to leave. It's hard to say goodbye to a salary and benefits and some, you know, using your background training to take that leap of faith into something else that's so unknown. It's hard to do that. <laughs> but I understand the, the motivation behind doing that. Yeah, it was definitely uh, a needed change for me, but it was sort of you know, and it still is, I'm still sort of in that transition. It's only been a few months and mm-hmm. I'm still trying to find my way. Um, but I do feel like it was a very positive change. Um, and I'm glad I, I made it, um, yeah. despite how difficult it was. So. Yeah, that's good. That's good. But now just a, a few months into it, would do you, do you have any advice for people who are considering, uh, leaving a <laughs> traditional career and going into photography? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm very grateful that I was able to uh, save up. <laughs> yeah, I, I saved up. You know, I saved up uh, the funds to give myself breathing space uh, during this transit transitional time. You know, I I was doing photography part time for many many years, and I you know I I never had the time to really focus on building building the income side of it. Um, so when yeah. I sort of jumped in you know, it's almost like I was jumping into sort of an empty pool. You know, I wasn't Mm -hmm. jumping into a a filled pool where I had some kind of, you know, solid income stream. I'm kind of doing it. I'm doing it from scratch. So it's not been easy. Um, It's been kind of like kind of a scary few months, but because I've had that sort of savings, um, you know, to lean on, it's, it took some of the pressure off. Um, And I ended up actually, uh, taking a part-time uh, remote position with a consulting firm in DC uh, just to kind of like take the edge off of uh, yeah. the income situation um, whilst I spend some time trying to build the income from the photography. Yeah. Yeah. That makes um, sense. So, it's nice to be able to do that. Yeah. So when you, when you decided to make the leap, did you think ahead about like, well, these are going to be the different revenue streams of the business. Like how much of the business aspect did you try to figure out ahead of time and how much of it are you sort of doing as, you know, learning as you're doing and going yeah. along? So I, I know uh, based on what I've been told by other photographers that there is this sort of necessity just based on how the market is to have multiple income streams. So yeah. I expected, you know, to have to have my finger in a lot of pies. Um, yeah, yeah. But I'm trying to be very mindful and sort of like co- conscious in which pies I stick my finger into. Right. Um, I, for example, I don't believe uh, the traditional uh, model of, of, you know, working workshops as a major source of income uh, for photographers. I don't, don't believe that will work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, although I haven't taught a workshop, I just know enough about myself to understand that that would be sort of like uncomfortable, very difficult for me. Yeah. Um, so that's the, you know, the more traditional way of doing it. And I already know that that's probably not going to work for me. So I'm looking for other uh, income streams. Um, 
that suit my personality more. So uh, an example would be my poster series that I've been working on for a few months. I wanted to find a way of getting my work uh, out to uh, customers that were not inclined to drop hundreds of dollars on fine art prints. Um, I do sell fine art prints, but that's uh, a very limited opportunity, I think, for most photographers. Um, And so I was looking for a way to get my work out there and sell it uh, in a way that was more accessible to more people. Right. Um, and so I came up with this idea of a, an art poster series um, that I could market on a retail basis as well as a wholesale basis mm-hmm. and even a commission basis if I needed to work with galleries or whatever. Right. Um, and so I, I designed this series of uh, posters and I'm about to uh, launch that and I'm hopeful that that will become over time one of multiple income streams. Right. But I guess yeah. it's an example of trying to find a stream that fits, you know, who I am as an individual in a creative way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure retail or wholesale posters uh, is something I've heard uh, other photographers that I'm connected with, you know, as having explored that as a potential source of income. Um, We'll see how it goes. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a really interesting approach. And um, just so that the listeners know, it's called the Appalachian Dreams. You, you've spent a lot of time in Appalachia and photographing that area and connecting with that landscape. And so, you know, maybe we can start talking about both the the business side of the poster series and and also the creative side. Maybe give the listeners a little bit of background about why Appalachia and and if they were to check out these posters, what would they find represented in them? Sure. So uh, in terms of, you know, what the series is, uh, it's I call it an art poster series inspired by the travel poster, retro travel poster mm. style. Yep. So they're uh, 18 by 24 inch posters, you know, vertical with a text uh, overlay. Um, and so there's 15, uh, 15 locations in the series, uh, all located within central uh, and southern Appalachian Mountains, Mm -hmm. uh, which is where I live and where I do most of my traveling. Certainly post-pandemic, most of my travel is uh, within Appalachia. Um, And so the states uh, covered include Tennessee, Virginia, where I live, uh, West Virginia, where I spend a lot of time, and also North Carolina. And they are sort of a uh, kind of a dreamy, dreamy landscapes shot in my signature style. Um, and they're accompanied by, you know, the text, uh, the lo- that shows the location and then a sort of a four line stream of consciousness account of, of the dream or the location. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are sort of this really beautiful, they're not just kind of a cheap and chintzy poster. They're this beautiful quality, uh, matte, uh, print out of a uh, company out of Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're made in the USA. Um, nice. I kind of am going to be marketing them as collectible because they, they work wonderfully in groups. Yeah. Um, and I guess, as I mentioned before, the whole, the whole point of, of this series was to make them price accessible. Right. Um, and so they are very affordable. Uh, the suggested retail on them is $33 or I'm going to be offering signed copies uh, for $50 on my website. 
And how did you come up with the 15 images? Uh, actually, I just, I perused my catalog. <laughs> I perused my catalog of images and found uh, 15 images uh, within Appalachia uh, that I thought were, uh, you know, would be very attractive, colorful uh, on walls that typified my, you know, my style of imagery and that were locations that I thought my target customer uh, would be interested in for you know whatever reason. So mm-hmm. some of them are iconic locations. Most of them are, I would say. Yeah. Um, others are probably less well known outside this immediate region, um, but maybe you know known within this local area. So yeah, um, that was kind of how I selected them. They also needed to conform to uh, you know. A certain layout because everything is standardized. You know, the Appalachian Dreams text header is in the same location on every poster. And mm-hmm. so the image behind the text had to be able to accommodate text in that location. Right. Um, couldn't be, you know, too busy or detailed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so did were, you do all of the design work yourself or did you work with a designer on the layout and the text colors and the text uh, font and all that kind of stuff? I did it all myself. Um, I actually have always enjoyed uh, graphic design, um, you know, laying out uh, posters. I've done poster work for myself to advertise uh, exhibitions or shows uh, in the past, Uh, but I did it. I did it all myself. That's great. Yeah. I I love them. I think they're just beautiful. Um, I've seen them on your website. Yeah. And I've seen you posting about them on Instagram and everything. So I, I highly recommend the listeners to, to check them out. And I understand that you're going to offer the listeners a discount on the purchase of the posters if you want to pitch that right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will offer uh, Outdoor Photography School listeners a 15% discount. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Um, uh, I believe this is going to be uh, distributed the podcast uh, mid-November um, yeah. and I think everything should be ready to go on my website uh, mid-November and I think you're going to post the code down below so yeah yeah just uh, listeners grab the code and, and head to my website and uh, get a 15% discount on the price of those posters so. awesome awesome well thank you so much and what's the code do you have it ready uh, or? yeah I do it's OPS for outdoor photography school OPS 15 for a 15% Perfect. discount Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And definitely I will put all those links in the show notes. I really encourage and hope that people go and check them out because they are really just beautiful and, and dreamy. Like you said, I mean, I think they're aptly named because I I feel this very uh, dreamy feel to those images. And you were talking about the little poem that you include, the little snippet about that mood. And I'm curious a little bit more about that. Is that something that you do with all of your images? Do you sort of give a summary of sort of what you were experiencing? Is that like a note that you make to yourself or when, when does that enter the creative process for you? So that became, uh, you know, just a creative way of, uh, you know, adding another element to the poster series. Um, it's not something I typically do with my work though. Poetry has been, uh, and continues to be an inspiration for me as an artist, but Mm -hmm. it it isn't necessarily something I always associate with my own work. It just may, you know, shooting in a particular location may conjure a particular poem for me or something like that. Um, sometimes I use poetry to help me title my work. Mm. Um, but I don't often, uh, use, uh, poetry or, or prose even, um, 
you know, as a part of my work because I'm definitely more comfortable with a visual medium medium than I yeah. am with a written medium. So Yeah, yeah, me too. Colleen Minnick, she's known for titling her her images before she creates the photograph. And sometimes she'll write a haiku to describe it. And, you know, and that all helps her get the creative juices going about what the image is about and that sort of thing. And I haven't, I haven't tried that yet because I, like you, I much prefer creating the image over the written word. And I think I would get stuck on the words too much, but I do see how that could be uh, a really nice way to tie it all together and really get down to the essence of what the image is about. Yeah, I agree. And I, it's certainly something I have sort of like explored, you know, and dabbled in. I, a couple of years ago, I shot a favorite image of mine uh, on Christmas Eve at a local uh, reservoir here. And it was just this incredibly like oh, peaceful and calm scene um, mm. on, you know, on sort of like the verge of this very sort of busy, chaotic time, you know, Christmas. Um, and I wrote this sort of I called it Winter Haiku was the name of the image. Uh, and I did write a haiku to go did you? with it. I did, yeah. And, and it was so fun. I loved it. But it is not something I do on a regular basis, yeah. uh, more an occasional basis. So. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So I, I understand that uh, you've worked with a number of clients and publications and other media outlets. And so I was wondering if you could describe for us sort of what is the process look like to get your work published is it something where you're you're submitting a bunch of proposals to places or do you already have a, a connection with these different outlets? Like, how does that work for someone who's interested in, in starting to publish their work? Okay. Um, so I was uh, very fortunate uh, in that my mentor uh, was connected with someone at National Geographic oh, nice. uh, in D.C. Um, and it was through my mentor that I was able to sort of establish this connection, my own connection with National Geographic. So unfortunately, <laughs> I can't really give advice on that, on that step. It's definitely, you know, having someone introduce you certainly, you know, is uh, the easy, the easy route. Uh, I was just very fortunate in that regard. So I can't really speak to that. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of how the process worked, I can say that, um, it was pretty straightforward, but it required a lot of attention to detail. Mm -hmm. um, so I, every year, I guess just to kind of back up, um, uh, I worked with National Geographic for a number of years uh, on their beautiful landscapes calendars. Yeah. Um, so this was uh, a calendar. It was the last calendar that National Geographic uh, published themselves. All the other ones that you see out there um, are licensed, uh, by oh, another company in Canada who prints their calendars. Oh, okay. Uh, but there was that. one, there was one holdout that was actually, uh, published by National Geographic themselves. And that was called beautiful landscapes. Um, and it sort of had this like cult following. It had been around for years. They had like a wall version and an engagement 52 week like desk version. Um, and it was the last one that they did. And that was the one uh, that I contributed to. But so that's kind of like, you know, the context here. But basically each year by a certain date, uh, I had to submit a gallery of images that I built uh, for them specifically. Um, and it had to be it, it had to follow a certain format. Uh, and I had to title or number, you know, all the images I had to 
format them correctly in terms of aspect ratio. And I had to think very carefully about which images I would submit because they had to meet certain preferences or in some cases requirements uh, on the part of National Geographic. Um, so it was a very sort of, uh, it was kind of a long process, you know, selecting the images, uh, getting them into the correct aspect ratio. I would often have to use uh, content aware scale mm -hmm. uh, to, to, you know, it wasn't just a case of like cropping my work in order to maintain the balance and um, the integrity of the original images. Right. Uh, I, I would have to use content aware scale. So there was a lot of preparation um, but I would upload the selected images and they would typically be um, 50 or 60 into a gallery um, and then submit the gallery. Uh, and then a few months later, they would come back uh, with the images that they had selected and we would go from there. So it was it was straightforward, uh, but it was very detail oriented. And I always my mentor always told me you have to you have to make this as easy as possible mm -hmm. uh, on the editor. Like if if it's hard for the editor to work with you or to view your work, um, it's just gonna you know disincentivize them to work with you again. Right. So you have to make it as smooth and easy a process as you can for these editors. So so that was always sort of like in the back of my mind. Um, just had to be very detail oriented. Um, so it's yeah. not to kind of mess anything up and create an issue for, for the editor. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But that, that was how it worked, uh, with that particular publisher. Um, I think anything else that I've had published has not, uh, been in print. Um, it's been, you know, website type work. So it's different. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Luminous so. Landscape, I believe, has published your work. Is that right? Yeah. Luminous yeah. Landscape. Um, and actually, uh, Sarah Marino and Ron Coscarosa's former uh, website, it was called Nature Photo Guides. Mm -hmm. They published my work. Um, and I've worked with uh, Lens Baby. Oh, nice. Uh, I think um, most people know who Lens Baby is. They manufacture art lenses. Yeah. I've used their lenses for years and I was an ambassador for them for a number of years. They published my work. Um, but I think most of the other publication has been in the digital world as opposed, opposed to the print world. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which is sort of how things are trending anyway, it seems. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you've also held uh, a bunch of solo and group exhibits as well. And so I'm, I'm curious, do you find that exhibits are a good way to get your work in front of new people? And uh, would you say it's uh, worth the cost of in investing in the printing? <laughs> my, I, I have also had a couple of exhibits and I had a lot of mixed results with that. And, and yeah. so I'm just curious what your experience has been. Yeah. So most of my exhibition experience has, has been sort of uh, local or regional uh, group type work. Um, I enjoy it. Uh, and I think it's a great way to build uh, your reputation as an artist, yeah. um, but it is not uh, an income generator. <laughs> yes, yeah. um, it's actually probably the opposite. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a money pit. <laughs> yeah, that's been my experience too. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it costs a lot of money to to print and frame, um, and so it definitely is not. Uh, 
I wouldn't recommend it as a way to to build income. But it, it certainly has helped me establish myself as an artist locally and regionally. Yeah. Um, now, I did work a couple of years ago. I think it was 2019. Uh, I worked with uh, a large university here regionally, uh, Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. They have a they have an art center called Moss Art Center. Uh, and there was a, uh, a curator there that put together uh, this incredible exhibition. It was called Arboreal. Uh, and it was a multimedia, multi-artist uh, exhibition all centered around trees. Um, and actually, my, my boyfriend, who is also a landscape photographer, oh, nice. uh, and I both were featured in that exhibition. He has these like just giant six foot wide prints <laughs> of trees that, that we went to Japan a few years ago and he made these gorgeous, gorgeous images of trees. Um, and so he had a few of these very large prints in the exhibition. Um, and then I had a series of uh, either seven or nine um, Appalachian ice laden landscapes. Um, so that was actually uh, important for me. That was a, uh, kind of a bigger venue and some of the artists included in the exhibition were uh, nationally known artists mm, um, wow. so that was a real privilege and honor uh, yeah. an opportunity for me to be included in that um, it was definitely a step forward for me um, and I was fortunate in that instance now this is the only instance where this has been the case uh, they were able to provide me with a grant to cover the cost of uh, framing. Oh, that's so those nice. Se- seven or nine images. They were large. They were like, you know, 45 inch wide images. Wow. Um, and so the framing would have been very expensive to do that. For sure. Um, yeah. So that grant really, you know, actually was that was the opportunity. I couldn't have done it otherwise. I couldn't have I couldn't have taken that kind of expense on to exhibit. Right. Um, so in that instance, it was it was just a little different because I didn't have to sort of like spend a lot of money to participate. But typically I think in, but you know, exhibiting, you do have to spend money uh, to participate, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my experience too. And it's always a debate of like, well, is it going to be worth it? And what am I going to do with the prints if they don't sell? And, you know, swap them out for prints in my house (laughs) from a previous exhibit or something like that, you know? Yeah. So I'm still trying to figure that out. (laughs) I have a lot of very large ice laden landscapes. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. Nobody wants to hang ice in their house. Um, So I try to recycle the frames. Actually, uh, my boyfriend is, he's my printer. Uh, Again, I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, He can, he can print my work. He does a beautiful, beautiful job. And we just recycle these frames that I have had from, you know, former exhibitions. So I save money on the printing and I save money on the frames. Yes. That's a great way to do it. Yeah. And save the planet by recycling. So exactly. That's excellent. I like that. So your portfolio contains more than just landscapes. You also do some portraiture and architecture photography, and there's a quality in your image that connects all these different genres. And at first I thought maybe, well, maybe it's your use of color and atmosphere, uh, that dreamy look, but you also have black and white images and you also have those without atmosphere. And so I'm curious, what would you say is the common thread between the diversity in your images and how are you able to portray that? Okay. Um, 
I think it's can only be uh, simplicity. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I try to uh, distill down my scenes, both in terms of uh, elements included in the frame and then in my color work in terms of the color itself. I so I, I don't like a lot going on. Like I just, I, I want it to be sort of like quiet. I, I guess mm-hmm. that would be a term I would use to describe my work. It's quiet yeah. and it's quiet by not including too many elements or it's quiet by not including too many colors yeah. or both. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess that would be how I would describe do what you, ties it all together. Yeah. Would you find, do you find that you, uh, gravitate more towards a telephoto lens then to kind of simplify the scene or do you yes. seek that also with wide angle? Well, I work with both, uh, but I think probably my natural way of seeing is more aligned with a telephoto. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately for me, I have uh, arthritis in my thumb joint. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so my, 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 my preferred lens is this ginormous, you know, <laughs> 70 to 200, you know, it weighs right. like 50 pounds <laughs> um, and it really stresses my thumb joint. So unfortunately for me, I see more telephoto than I do wide, but uh, yeah. you know, I, I try to work in both and I certainly always carry both. So yeah, I'm similar. I, I often gravitate towards the 200 to 400 focal length than the wide angle. I, I find it more difficult to compose wide angle images. <laughs> I don't I agree. really, yeah, I don't know. I, I, when we, so we both just for the listeners, we both were in Acadia national park recently for different reasons, but we were there together and I brought the extra wide angle lens being like, I'm going to practice that. But I kept going back to the telephoto. <laughs> Finally, I had to be like, no, just practice the wide angle <laughs> composition. You know? Yeah, it's funny. We were both there at the same time when we were doing the same thing because I was trying to force myself to work wide. And yeah. I, I, I have this old uh, 14 millimeter Zeiss lens that I hardly ever use. But I found myself using it quite a bit in Acadia because I, I told myself, you know, try to shoot wide. I wanted to kind of step away from my uh, typical approach and try something new. And that was one of the things I did was work with that lens quite a bit. Um, yeah. And I enjoyed it. You know, it's good to sort of, you know, step away from the regular box it uh, is. and try something new. It is. It's hard. It's hard to do that sometimes when, especially when you're in a new location. And so I found for myself, I was like, I just need to do what's comfortable. And then, and then I was able to find that, okay, I can put the telephoto away it's going to be okay. you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So I I also have noticed in your portfolio that you create a lot of abstract images using intentional camera movement or ICM. Mm -hmm. And I've only played with it a little bit. I like doing it. It it rarely works out really well (laughs) when I try. Um, And so I'm, I'm curious when you're out in the field, what inspires you to go for the ICM technique or not? And, you know, is there, a composition that works well for ICM or is it just sort of trial and error and you, you yeah. end up with one that works? Yeah. So I love ICM. Uh, I love it because it's this sort of option that's always there when the conditions aren't great or I'm yeah. not feeling super inspired by what I'm looking at. Yeah. It's, it's just this sort of like, it's this tool that you always have available that you can pull out uh, to stimulate creativity when other things aren't going so well. You know, you're not seeing creatively in other ways or the light isn't what you want or, um, or 
honestly, if, if the landscape just isn't that interesting, uh, photographically yeah. speaking. Um, so I use it as a, as a sort of a tool when other tools fail me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love it because it sort of like can distill down the landscape into just form and color. Yeah. And so that's, that's a way of, of simplifying, which is what I'm always looking to do. And, and I love, love that about it, but I'm very picky. <laughs> I'm very picky about my ICMs. I do not like uh, to include any sky whatsoever in my ICMs. Yeah. It adds this very sort of heavily textured look uh, mm. to the images, which I don't enjoy. I like the softer, smoother kind of look. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful tool and I use it on a regular basis. I have like everyone else that uses it, I have a very high failure rate, yeah. <laughs> uh, but occasionally I, I hit on something that, that just, uh, I love. Um, and so I, I love playing with it. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of freeing, you know, take the camera off the tripod and, you know, set the shutter slow and just, you know, move it about and you can move it in so many different ways and achieve so many different effects. Yeah. Um, Do you have a preferred shutter speed that you use for it? Yeah. Uh, I like to work around the half second to seven tenths of a second. Mm-hmm. I find that works the best with the way I move the camera. Um, and I, I'm typically using my 70 to 200 yeah. uh, lens for that. And so all those things combined just through trial and error, I've just you know determined that half to seven tenths of a second works best yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I tried longer as well, but I think I, I tend to move, move the lens or the camera fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. So longer, just kind of like, it's just too much blur and not enough definition. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah. Do you ever keep it on the, on the tripod and just move in one direction? No. Yeah. I don't. Uh, mostly because it's just too limiting. <laughs> yeah. It, to me, it's just too limiting to, to try to work it on the tripod. Um, you know, I do it if I'm doing a linear movement, you yeah. know, up and down or side to side, I'm, I'm, I'm very consciously, you know, trying to control, you know, control that movement so that it remains level because otherwise you introduce diagonals and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I'm pretty good at that. And if you, if you weren't, then I can see how the tripod might help you depending on what type type of head you have on your tripod. Yeah. Um, I have a ball head, so it, it right. just, it doesn't help me. It doesn't help me stabilize. It sort of makes it more difficult. Yeah. So I don't, I don't use the tripod. Yeah. Yeah. I think a pan tilt head would make it easier to do that. Um, yeah. And do you ever do the like zoom the lens kind of? Yes. Yeah. I have done that. Yeah. Um, I tend not to be as happy with that result as I am with, a more sort of linear movement or um, a combination of linear and random or like I, I like kind of spirals or yeah, circles. You've done really good spirals. I've, I've really enjoyed them. They're just so cool to look at and yeah, Thank you. it's different Thank than you. what you typically see with ICM, which I like. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of simplicity and, and tools to get to simplicity, I know you also love fog and mist. And so do you have any practical tips on how to predict or find fog or foggy conditions, you know, how do you, how do you go, do you plan those images or how does that work? Okay. So, uh, I'm always on the hunt for fog. Um, (laughs) but unfortunately it's very difficult. Um, in some situations it's very difficult to predict fog. Um, 
So I've, I guess I live in a mountainous area and the easiest way to find fog in a mountainous area is to go up in elevation mm-hmm. uh, above the cloud base layer. That's the easiest way to find fog. It's the most reliable way to find it. So I use certain uh, apps that will tell me what the elevation of the base, the cloud base is on mm-hmm. a cloudy day. So, you know, the, the app, and I'll mention the apps by name here in a minute, but the app will tell me, you know, at the lowest cloud base on any given day is 1800 feet. And so I'm like, okay, I can go to X mountain, uh, which is 2,500 feet mm-hmm. and know that I will be in the clouds. Right. So gotcha. that's, okay. that's the easiest, uh, most reliable way of finding fog for me in the area I'm in. Mm-hmm. Low-lying fog, like in valleys uh, and along waterways, is much more difficult to uh, predict and find. Um, so I have less of my work uh, includes that type of fog. They're very different types of fog. You know, a, a low cloud is very thick and dense yeah, right. uh, and sort of like a, you know, an even fog, whereas a, a, a fog rising off a waterway or uh, confined to a valley you know, can have light coming through it from above, um, can be just more isolated and have more sort of varied density. So they're just very different kinds of fog. Mm-hmm. I like the second kind, the, the kind that's harder to find and harder to predict. I like that kind more. Mm-hmm. It's more interesting to have light coming through, uh, through the fog. Um, but just, you know, by virtue of its nature, uh, I find it less often and it features less often in my my work as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, you know, that's, they're they're just two very different kinds of fog. So a story about fog. um, I'm always on the hunt for fog. (laughs) I never, (laughs) I never, I never stop talking about fog. Um, I'm sure I bore everyone around me. Um, I was in Acadia, as you mentioned, and I was so hopeful that I would find fog. Uh, because there's a lot of water, right. obviously, surrounding Acadia. There are a lot of lakes. And we were there at that time of year when the air starts to cool down, but the water still retains the, the warmth from the summer. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, that's a formula that uh, can be very favorable for fog formation. So I was really hopeful that I would be able to find fog while I was in Acadia. And, you know, I think I saw about two wisps of it the entire <laughs> 12 days that I was there and they lasted all of 30 seconds. Right. You know? It yeah. just, it wasn't a foggy time. It really wasn't. Was in, yeah. And the morning I drove away, uh, as I drove off the island onto the mainland, there was fog everywhere uh. <laughs> with, with sun coming through and it was all like taunting me. Yes. You know? <laughs> So it, it can be a mysterious uh, thing that's difficult to find, difficult to predict. Um, but that's actually one of the things I love about it. So Yeah, yeah. Kind of like Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's a little more appealing than Bigfoot. That's true, that's true, yeah. <laughs> so what are the apps that you use for pre- predicting the weather to see if it would be fog friendly? Okay. Uh, so I use... Uh, two apps religiously. Uh, one is, uh, well, actually one is an app and one is a website. Okay. So the app is called 
Meteo Blue, M-E-T-E-O, and then the word blue. Okay. And it's a European weather app, and uh, it's incredibly uh, robust. It's just kind of like mind-boggling how much information is in that app. But there's one particular part of the app that that I use, and that's called the Meteogram. Okay. And it's just a little uh, PDF uh, graphic snapshot of three days and three nights. and on the meteogram, it has a graphic uh, representation of cloud cover. Okay. And so it shows uh, cloud elevation on the vertical axis. Um, the horizontal is time. And then it, sh- it shows the density of cloud coverage by the color of the clouds it, it shows. So the darker okay. the color, the more complete the coverage. Gotcha. And it's a really effective uh, you know, graphical graphical forecast uh, tool. Um, so I use that a lot because, you know, it can show like low level cloud. Uh, and it's actually, I find it to be very accurate. Um, but it's only good for uh, fog across large areas, very localized fog. It's not going to show up on a, on a forecasting tool. Right. That makes um, sense. So I use that and then I use uh, a website. It's an aviation weather website. Uh, and that's called U.S. AirNet. Okay. Um, and they have, I think the website as a whole is way more than just weather, but they have an, an element to their website that is devoted to aviation weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, will show two things that I use. Uh, one is the cloud-based elevation, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, I use it all the time here in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I find that to be very accurate as well. Um, you can dial it into particular airport codes. So I dial it in when I'm in Roanoke to the Roanoke code, but you can, they have codes for all the airports. Um, I see. So, so they have the cloud base elevation, which I use a lot. And then they also have, uh, something called a temperature dew point spread, which is basically just, uh, the difference in the ambient temperature and the um, the temperature at which humidity is one hundred percent. So the mm. uh, dew point, the dew point. Yeah, yeah. So so they have a they have a line on their chart that shows the difference between those two. Anyone can figure it out uh, based on the numbers on any chart, but this particular website plots that line, so it shows just the difference between what the actual temperature is and what the dew point is. I see. And so when that is like less five degrees or less, that would be indicate that conditions could be favorable for fog formation. I see. In these um, more localized areas. No. Okay. This this would again be a tool for a, a general area. Okay. There are there are no tools for localized areas. That's part of the problem. I see. All the yeah. all the tools are applicable to sort of, you know, broad areas. Yeah. Um but it, it can tell you when, you know, the temperature is dropping to a point where it's getting close to the dew point. Well, the air becomes more saturated at that point. And right. so that could be a condition that's favorable gotcha. to fog formation. Yeah, that makes sense. So those are two that, I, that I've used and continue to use. And then I found a new one recently. Um, it's a bit of a mind, blows my mind a little bit, but it's called, it's on the NOAA website. Um, NOAA being the National Oceanic and Atmospheric 
administration, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. And there's a satellite called the GOES satellite, and it has this um, it has this uh, coverage or um, imagery called nighttime microphysics, hmm. and it can help. It it helps. It's a color. It's sort of like radar, okay. but it's different. Like the color, the colors shown are different, and it and it and it is a representation of a different set of characteristics than a regular radar that shows moisture. This tries to differentiate between clouds and fog. Oh, nice. And so you could dial it in. It's really regional. You can't get really local with it, but you can see like if, if I'm in the um, Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia, I could get in close enough on the GO satellite coverage to see if there's any uh, color indication on that image that could suggest there's fog in the valleys. And you, uh, the nice thing about it is you can check it at night. Ooh, um, that's nice. Yeah. You know, uh, other coverages are like visible. And so you can't see, you know, visible data when it's nighttime because it's not visible. But this right. is a coverage that uh, I'm not sure how it works. I'm not knowledgeable about all of that but it, it basically it can distinguish between clouds and fog and it does that in a in the way it represents color huh, um, really and so I've, yeah i started like exploring that you know if i'm up at 4 a.m and i'm trying to decide where to go you know i might yeah. bring up the go satellite coverage and see well is it looking like there might be fog in the valleys you know right. this morning so yeah yeah well, it's definitely helpful to have these different tools for things like that. I, I had used a bunch of different apps to predict the Aurora when I was up photographing in the Yukon uh, a few years ago. And there wasn't like one app that was perfectly able to predict it. You kind of had to look at a bunch of different ones and make an assessment on on the information from the different apps. And so it sounds like it's kind of a similar approach with fog. It's like, you're not really sure if you're going to get it, but here are the conditions that would make it ideal yeah. if it were to happen. <laughs> and, yeah, it's very, it's a very squishy process. Yeah. And it's really just trying to increase the possibility that you might cross paths with fog. It's not like you're never going to definitively, you know, find it and, and get it right. you know, without, you can't be ever be a hundred percent confident. Yeah. It's always, Hey, if I take this information, maybe I'll increase the chance that I'll cross paths with some fog. So, right. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll link those in the show notes so that people can check them out as well. So thank you for sharing that. So we talked a little bit already about the Appalachian Dream series that you've created, um, but you have another series called The Feminine Landscape. And so I was wondering if you could describe for us what this series is all about. And also, could you give us a, a bit of like a behind the scenes look as to what goes into creating these types of images. And so maybe describe for people what it is first, if they haven't seen it, okay. and then talk about like, how do you even create an image like that? Okay, sure. Yeah. So uh, the feminine landscape is a personal project uh, of mine that I've been working on or was working on uh, for quite a few years. Um, it is currently uh, retired status. Okay. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but basically, it is a series of images that merge the port portrait and landscape genres mm -hmm. into uh, individual images. Okay. Um, so a series of self-portraits of my own 
personal experiences uh, in the landscape that I'm shooting as a landscape photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, so some examples would be um, when I was in uh, Death Valley, I did uh, one of my favorite images uh, from this series of me running sort of free across this uh, side-lit sand dune in, uh, in Death Valley. Um, I would have another one uh, that I shot in White Sands National Park, uh, me communing with these yucca plants in front of the moon. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, or another one where I was sort of dancing like a ballerina on the edge of an ice fjord in Greenland. So they're, they're all very different, but they're all sort of self-portraits in a way, kind of fantastical self-portraits in these traumatic memorable landscapes that I've been so fortunate to have been able to visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to do those things and see those places is something that I really treasure. Like it's probably means more to me than any other, other than the people in my life. Yeah. It certainly means more to me than any other uh, element in my life. You know, my, it means more than where I live. It means more than what I wear. It means more than, all the physical things in my life, these experiences sort of like define who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. And so I just, they are very important to me. And I wanted to find a way to document what I have been fortunate to be able to do in a very creative way. And so since I was out there anyway, as a landscape photographer, you know, standing in these ridiculously amazing places with my camera on a tripod. Right. (laughs) Um, I just kind of like came up with this idea of, you know, walking out into this scene that I've like framed up, you know, I've got this beautiful composition. Um, and I sort of just had the idea one day, well, what if I walk out there, you know, and sort of like add this human element, add this, uh, you know, add scale to the image, Mm -hmm. add a sense of adventure to the image. Um, and also add, a, you know, for myself, a way to document that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I did that and I was like, ooh, this is really cool. You know, I mean, I was just kind of wearing the first few. I was just wearing my outdoor clothes. And I was like, I wonder what it would be like if I, you know, added, you know, a really ama- brightly colored dress that contrasted dramatically with the landscape. So yeah. then I started like shoving dresses down in my backpack <laughs> when I would go out on these, yeah. on these trips. Um, and I would throw on the dress and I would like run out into the scene and, and take photographs of myself. And yeah. it just became this, like this thing. It was like this beautiful expression of something I was doing anyway. Right. Um, and it, it was a nice balance to the more, um, static, uh, traditional landscape image that I was creating. It was more expressive. It was less traditional. Mm -hmm. Um, it had the human element where, you know, my regular work does not in any way, shape or form have a human element. Right. And so I found it this, it was an expression, it was a documentation, but it was also this beautiful balance to my, to my regular work. Yeah. Um, and so I started doing it like, almost everywhere I went, I started making this work. And, you know, a lot of them weren't successful because it's very difficult to uh, think of so many things all at the same time. You know, you're thinking of the composition, you're thinking of the light, you're thinking of the settings, you're thinking of your pose, you're thinking of the dress color, you're thinking of all these different elements. And so 
not unlike intentional camera movement, there was a high failure rate. Um, but when it worked, it worked beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I have the series of images and I actually have a whole lot of stuff that I've never, never edited or published because ultimately I, I sort of retired the project as this, this became a thing <laughs> on Instagram. It became like this, I don't know, it just kind of took over Instagram, of, you know, people in these beautiful landscapes and it sort of rendered my personal project, yeah. honestly, passe, to be completely honest. I mean, my project just became a bit of a cliche. Um, and so I retired it, but it was certainly whilst I was doing it, which was maybe for five years, um, very, very meaningful to me. Yeah. Um, and the, and the images remain very meaningful to me. Uh, ultimately I would, uh, love to find the time to compile them into a book with, uh, narratives about each one of those experiences yeah. as well. And to give it to my daughter, Oh, that'd be she's, beautiful. 20, she's 21 now. She's about to graduate from college. Yeah. And, you know, mom is just really not that cool, but, <laughs> but this book, <laughs> if I could put together this book and give it to her, she might change her mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I think so. that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. Especially cause it is so personal of, mm-hmm. of your connection and your experience. And they're, they're so mystical and beautiful. And I just can't even imagine the planning that goes behind it. Like, I'm just trying to imagine myself, all of the competing elements, like you just said, the timing, the lighting, getting out of your hiking gear and into a beautiful dress and then, and making sure that you're in the frame the way you thought you would be when you framed up yeah. the shot. You must have a long range remote trigger or something. Yeah, I had uh, I had a remote that had a good range on it, and then I also would use um, the intervalometer part oh, of my remote. That makes sense. Yeah, so, so it would just so, take a whole bunch, so, almost like a time lapse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I would just set it off going, you know, take a frame every two seconds, and then I'd you know walk five minutes away, and I'd have seven hundred and fifty <laughs> images of me me on the way to the place. Right. But, yeah. But then but then there would be, you know, twenty of me in this place. And um Yeah. So yeah, high failure rate, but sometimes it came together. Did you ever have people come along the way and ask what you were doing or Yeah, that was always uh not not my favorite part. I, I don't like an audience. Yeah. Um that seems contrary to what would be suggested by the series itself. Um, but I, I do not like an audience at all. It makes me feel so, so self-conscious. And, and so I would kind of do them secretively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would try to do them at times when there wouldn't be anyone there uh, to see me doing it. Yeah. Uh, or I would, you know, pick places where there was no one, but I, it's not something I, I, I tried not to have an audience. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some, some of my images I couldn't do, I couldn't have done without assistance. Mm-hmm. So there's an image I did in great smoky mountains, national park. There was this beautiful, like soft rounded hill uh, in Cades Cove that I watched it for years. And, and the, the light would just kind of like glance off this hill in this really magical way. And I knew I wanted to make an image there, but it was just, where I would have to set my camera up was just too far away from where I needed to be to put myself in the right place in the frame. And Mm -hmm. I 
I mean, I would have had 10,000 images of me on the way to right. the place <laughs> in that instance. So, so I worked with, I have a photography uh, buddy, a shooting partner, a good friend of mine called Tim. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually helped me with that image. So is that the one behind um, you there on the wall that I can see? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that the, the first time I saw it, um, I think was in your Instagram feed and from without looking at, at it too closely, I actually thought you were walking across a tree, like a giant yeah. redwood tree rather than um, a very curvy hillside with yeah. the light just perfect. I just thought that was such so cool, like that effect that the light had on the hillside made it bend so that it looked like you were walking on a tree trunk. I've heard that interpretation of that image before. Have you? Um, yeah. yeah, I have. Yeah. And actually it was that sort of, uh, that element of the way that that light struck that hill that caught my attention yeah. to begin with. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's just this beautifully rounded hill and, and the light just glances over the top of it and just gives it this amazing dimension. Right. Right. And I think, I mean, having you in the image or, you know, the, person in the image, whether it's you or not, I think makes the image, right? Because if it was just the hillside that you were photographing, it would, the, what it is would be a little bit lost, but now you've got this sense of mystery and this sense of what is this place? Where is this person going? Where are they? You know, what are they experiencing? All these new questions come to light by having you in there. So, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the beautiful things of, you know, having this, you know, project as an ongoing project was it, it did sort of like open up uh, shooting opportunities that may not have been there otherwise. Yeah, you know, yeah. Some scenes just don't work without X included in them. And this one needed a, a figure or a person. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I also, I just, because I've been following you on Instagram and you've been, we both were just in Acadia and you've been putting out all of this wonderful new material on Acadia. I've been so impressed by how prolific you are. <laughs> and so I wonder, do you have like a, a workflow when you're traveling like that to, to be able to shoot, edit and publish on such a quick scale? So typically uh, I do not carry uh my laptop with me when I go on these trips. Okay. So normally I would just have, I shoot, as I'm shooting, I'm writing to two, two cards, an SD card and a CF card, both at the same time. So I have a backup. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally that I just take my cameras with my two memory cards and that's it. And when I get back, I, I just kind of like download and, you know, dig into it all. Um, but this particular trip was different. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm working remotely for this consulting firm in DC and I needed to be able to work that job while I was in Acadia. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, I had to take my laptop with me. Yeah. <laughs> and actually I, I went to the library in Southwest Harbor every day. I was in oh, Acadia okay. and work, worked for a few hours on my laptop. But gotcha. so that was the reason I had the laptop on this trip, which was atypical. Yeah. Um, so I was camping um, and it was getting dark so early, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. So I would go, I would go back to my campsite. I, I was camping alone. It was just me, and I would go back, and it was dark, and it was like six thirty. Right. So, so, <laughs> so I, I did have, um, I've got an inverter in in my in my car that allows me to charge electrical you know, electronic devices, so I could keep my laptop charged at the camp campground, and I would go into my tent at night with my laptop and I would download all my images and like work on them for like four hours in my tent yeah. because there was nothing else to do. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I, I was, uh, 
I was prolific on this trip, but it was a function of, you know, having a laptop where I wouldn't typically, and also, you know, early dark hours and having all these hours of nothing to do. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so I processed, I processed a lot of images. Um, and then when I got back, I just, I get obsessive about these things. I need to, I need to dig into it quickly while I feel that like fire and I still have a really clear sense of the place and like how I felt and Mm -hmm. um, what my intent was for, you know, a particular image when I shot it. Yeah. I like all that to be really fresh. And so I just kind of like dig in. Yeah. Yeah. People have different approaches to that. Some photographers like to put it on pause for a while, a couple months and then go back and others want to work on it right away. And I, I find that I'm more like you. I like to have it sort of fresh in my mind and yeah, I find it to be helpful to do that too. So, so camping, I understand that you uh, recently converted your, your Honda element into uh, a camper van <laughs> of sorts, um, well, which has ha- had some success and some trials and tribulations as well as I understand. So can, can you tell yeah, us about yeah. that? Yeah, sure. I have a 2011 Honda Element that I absolutely love. I've had it since like 2013, I think. Um, wow. So I've had it for quite a while. I use it. It's my primary vehicle. Um, and I chose it because it's a great vehicle to camp in. That was the only reason that I chose the Honda Element when I was buying a car. Um, It allows me to, A, sleep inside the car, Mm -hmm. which when I'm traveling alone, I just feel, I just feel safer and more secure inside the car. Yeah. Um, So I like to sleep in the car and the Element is set up, uh, it's designed, it has kind of a, very flat floor in the back. You know, it's a, a wide expanse of flat floor. It doesn't have a bunch of like wheel wells intruding and all this stuff. It's just this large flat area mm-hmm. that has a high ceiling and the seats can come out, but they also can lay flat. So the front seat falls down, the back seat falls down and they marry up and you end up with this sort of like, it's more of an undulating surface to sleep on. And so I used that as my bed inside the element for years, but it really wasn't very comfortable. <laughs> it was kind of, it just wasn't flat. You right, know? It, right. it, and so I was never comfortable and I was never uh, really getting rest. Um, and I always wanted to build uh, a sleeping platform. It's, it's this whole like subculture thing, yeah. uh, you know, uh, modifying these older elements to be more comfortable as camping vehicles. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wanted to do it. I just never could find the time when I was working in development or whatever. I was just too busy. Yeah. Um, and so I always just tolerated this undulating seat. Um, <laughs> but when I, when I stopped uh, working full-time in development, I was able to uh, spend some time designing my modification um, and sort of bringing it, bringing it to life. So I built this three piece, uh, sleeping platform, uh, in the back of the vehicle. I put down what I call wall to wall carpeting. Mm-hmm. It's this nice, nice carpet all across the back. And I like, uh, sewed, uh, black outlines that mm-hmm. kind of tuck in, tuck into all the windows and make it like really dark, 
from the inside, but also uh, really dark from the outside. So because sometimes I use that to sleep in in a stealth way, like I'm not at a campground. I'm not at a trailhead. I might be in a Walmart parking lot right, right. <laughs> and I don't want anyone to know I'm in there. Right. So yeah. these blackout blinds just completely just make it dark and it's just a parked car in a sea of parked cars. Yeah. Oh, and that's so nice. I, yeah. So I did some other things. I put in like a, a cargo net under the, you know, the ceiling inside the vehicle. Um, and I put in all these like moly bags on the on the doors um yeah it's got all kinds of uh really cool little details in there but essentially um i made it into a more space efficient more comfortable camping vehicle Mm -hmm. and uh, i actually took it i went on a marketing trip to west virginia a couple weeks before i went to acadia and that was when i tested out um all these modifications um and that was the last time I slept in a Walmart parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I forgot to mention one of the modifications um, was I installed a uh, interior hatch release for my tailgate. Yeah. And I probably shouldn't tell this story because it's terribly embarrassing. But um, I made this whole video about all these modifications too. Um, but I, I, I bought a kit uh, from online that would allow me to supposedly simply and straightforward straightforwardly put in this uh latch release that I could pull from the inside of the vehicle to open that yeah tailgate um and so it will it seemed pretty straightforward at the time (laughs) I did it and it worked it worked beautifully I made a video of it I I saw the video I was really impressed (laughs) (laughs) it was wonderful until the day the day I was leaving for the trip when I went to open the tailgate to load in all this camping equipment and camera equipment and it wouldn't open oh my god like even from the outside it it wouldn't operate it just the latch was like not operational at all. So I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know what I did wrong, but ultimately I was able to get it repaired, uh, in, uh, Portland, Maine, (laughs) uh, at a dealership. Uh, they had to replace basically the whole guts of the tailgate to get the latch to work again. And, uh, it cost, uh, over $700 Yikes. to get it fixed. So I wouldn't re- recommend <laughs> <laughs> installing your own interior hatch release on a Honda element. I would not recommend it. Um, yeah. so, so that kind of fell through for me. That's too um, bad. Do you, yeah. is there another way to get, can you get out through the, like the passenger door or? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. That's how I've used it for years. You have to lean over the front seat, open the front door. And then you have this, the Honda has this like, uh, reverse, uh, opening back door it it, it oh. sort of it i don't know how to say it it the hinge is on the back of the door instead of the front of the door i see so you lean over open the regular front door and then you can open the side door gotcha okay it's very awkward um but it works and that's how i have to use it so yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well is it more comfortable i guess that's the other the more yeah. important thing is it can you sleep in it <laughs> It's, yeah, it's incredible. I, I bought like a hybrid camping mattress. It's sort of foam and inflatable. Nice. And I put that on the platform and it's unbelievable how comfortable this thing is. Oh, I, I just, I'm blown away by it. Yeah. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I have a Tacoma and I just built a little platform for the back uh, just before Acadia, actually. And so I have not slept in it yet. So I have no report on how functional or comfortable <laughs> it is. Um, but I have a short bed and I am short myself, but I'm not so short that I have to, I'll, I will have to sleep on a diagonal in yeah. the bed. So I'm not sure how comfortable it will be in the end, but maybe by the time we chat again, I'll have, <laughs> I'll have a report you- on that. Did you get a mattress to go on top of that? I have or? campy mattresses that I thought I would use. We have like the typical like backpacking camping mattress, which, which you know, those are not that comfortable. The ones that are like an inch thick. And then we have what we call like glamping camping mattresses because they're like five pounds. You would never hike with it. That's what mine is. Yeah, yeah. but it's like four inches thick. It's so yeah. comfortable. <laughs> when you're in the car, it doesn't really matter. Exactly. It weighs a lot, yeah, right? exactly. So I, that's what I was going to use was that you know, for car camping in a tent, that's really comfortable. Yeah. So I have a bit of fitted sheet for mine. So it's Ooh. all like neat, neat and like a real bed. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole level of glamping. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah, why not? Okay, good. All right. Why not? All right. So what is your favorite quality of light to photograph? Oh, uh, fog, fog, fog yeah. with fog with sunlight coming through, like low angle light. Would you say? Yeah, definitely low angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But just you know, I guess a lifting fog with sunlight mm-hmm. breaking through mm-hmm. would be my favorite. Yeah, it's also the hardest to find. Right, so. <laughs> most elusive. Yes. Um. So, what's one piece of gear that you can't live without? Uh, that's not your camera lenses or tripod. I, I would say. I'm really scared of bears. Like I'm really <laughs> terrified of crossing paths with bears. Yeah. And so I always carry an air horn. Oh, um, that's interesting. Always have an air horn. Like I also, if I'm in a bear dense area, I also carry bear spray. Yeah. But I honestly don't want a bear to get close enough to me where I can get it with the spray. That's right. way too close. Yeah. So the air horn would be my first line of defense. Yeah. Just to scare it off. So I always have my air horn in my bag. Yeah. I've never heard of that. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, much, much more effective than a bear bell, I would think. (laughs) Yeah. I have one of those too, but I don't always carry that because it's way annoying. annoying. Yeah. They are annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you do a lot of camping and I understand that you're currently following the keto diet. And so I'm curious, what is your favorite keto friendly camp meal? Okay. Um, I'm actually, since I went to Acadia, I'm not, I'm off keto, but I am going back on it now that I'm home. Um, I really like that diet because I feel better on that diet than I do when I eat a lot of carbs. Yeah. Um, but it is tricky. Uh, it's tricky on two levels, uh, for people who are outdoors and active. So it's not great for energy. And I, I, Generally, if I'm going to be outdoors for any extended period of time or I'm going to be doing anything that involves a lot of exertion, mm-hmm. I I step away from the keto because I just find my energy level, it's very difficult to access energy in a body that's on the keto diet. So in yeah. general, I, I stay away from keto when I'm outdoors. That makes uh, sense. But there, ha- yeah. there have been times where I have been eating keto uh when i have been outdoors and i actually really like uh salmon (laughs) salmon that you can get in olive oil in foil pouches so it's oh nice somewhat lightweight Mm -hmm. um 
and I mix that with mayonnaise and I'll have it like, um, in a tortilla, mm-hmm. uh, with you know, lettuce or I usually carry cucumber. Isn't that weird? So I really like it like in a tortilla with, um, mayonnaise and cucumber nice. and salt and pepper, which I always carry as well. So yeah, that uh, sounds delicious. That's good in keto right there. Yeah. It has to be a low carb tortilla though. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why photography? Um, I think of myself as number one, I'm, I've always been creative. Like I have this, just this never unrelenting urge to create. So I have to create in some way. Mm -hmm. And I think photography resonates for me because I sort of like sit in this sort of on the fence between being right brained and being left brained. So I have a very well-developed creative side, Mm -hmm. but I also have this well-developed uh, more technical analytical side. And so photography also kind of sits on the fence between those two things. Um, and I think that's why it resonates for me. It sort of, um, it just checks both those boxes for me. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, really creative, but it's also, you know, got this sort of technical side to it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. I I can relate to that being, having a science background, it definitely has been a nice marriage between those two sides of the brain. I agree. Now I do not get mired down in the technical side of things. You probably will never hear me talking about technical stuff. You know, I just, but, but, you know, the physical act of like using the camera and really knowing, knowing the camera and understanding, you know, exposure and those things are very enjoyable for me, but I, don't generally sort of really talk about it. But. Sure. Yeah. But you did have to learn it at some point, right? So studying all of that, having that more analytical brain probably helped a bit to acquire that knowledge. So what does connecting with nature mean to you? Okay. Um, what does it mean to me? Um, I think connecting with nature is, for me, it's like this, I use lip balm a lot. Okay. <laughs> this is really, really weird and like random. I'm like obsessed with lip balm, right? I've uh-huh. always got dry lips. So I always need the lip balm. Being out in nature is like soul balm. Mm. It's like, oh, I like that. It, it's like medicine for my soul. It just makes me feel better as a human being. It's like this beautiful balance or antidote to, you know, the chaos and the stress and the anxiety of, modern life. Mm-hmm. It, it, it brings much needed balance and perspective, uh, into my life. And so that's its primary value for me. And then it also connecting with nature is a way to have experiences that I wouldn't otherwise have, you know, I have these incredible, um, really clear memories of my trip to Acadia over the last two weeks. I just have these moments that, you know, struck me and, 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 and now I carry those, I carry those with me. So connecting with nature is a way to collect moments and experiences that are meaningful Mm -hmm. um, and quiet and relaxing and, 
give me perspective. And I lost my reverence for nature for so many years. I, I just kind of, it, it was just, you know, lost along the way of getting married and having kids and, or having a kid getting, you know, a career going. And I sort of lost that reverence that I had as a young person for the natural world. And so being out, you know, making beautiful images in nature today allows me to tap into that reverence that I've had ever since I was a child. So Yeah, oh, it's so wonderful. I'm so glad. I'm so happy for you that you're doing it. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm happy for me too. Yeah. <laughs> I feel lucky, very lucky to yeah. be able to to observe, you know, what I get to observe. So it makes makes me a better person. <laughs> yes, I agree. Me too. Makes me a better person too. <laughs> Well, Michelle, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your stories with us today. I'm sure the listeners really appreciated it and got a lot out of the show. And I, if people wanted to learn more about your photography and your Appalachian Dreams posters, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, the best way to find me is to go to my website. Um, so that is Michelle with just one L. So mm-hmm. M-I-C-H-E-L-E. And then it's sons, like sons and daughters, S-O-N-S, michellesons.com. Great. You can find out everything you want to know there. Okay, excellent. And I'll put those links in the show notes along with the the discount code for the posters and uh, all the other things that we talked about today. So the apps. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Good. Well, great. Well, thank you again. Well, thank you, Brenda. I really, I mean, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, to talk to you and think about these things. It's great to sort of like have that opportunity to discuss it with you. Um, so thank you for inviting me. Oh, of course. And, and hopefully yeah. it won't be the last time we talk about it. <laughs> hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, take care. You too, Brenda. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michelle. And again, you can find out more about her photography on her website at michellesonsphotography.com. And I highly recommend checking out her Appalachian Dreams poster series, which I will link to in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com forward slash 33. And again, thank you, Michelle, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. Next up on the podcast, we'll have Pennsylvania-based landscape photographer, writer, and educator Chrissy Donady on the show to chat about the challenges of finding the ever-elusive work-life balance, staying connected to what brings you happiness in photography, some Lightroom tips, and a whole lot more. So be sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss out on this or any of our upcoming conversations. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll answer some of your submitted questions. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on a Tidbit Tuesday, just go to outdoorphotographypodcast.com and you'll be able to record your short message. Till then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.